Book 6 Chapter 1 O God, my hope from my youth, where were you all this time? Where had you gone? For was it not you who created me and distinguished me from the beasts of the field and made me wiser than the birds of the air? Yet I walked through dark and slippery places, and I went out of myself in the search for you and did not find the God of my heart. I had come into the depths of the sea, and I had lost faith and all hope of discovering the truth. By this time my mother had come to me, following me over sea and land with the courage of piety and relying upon you in all perils. For they were in danger from a storm, and she reassured even the sailors, by whom travelers newly ventured upon the deep are ordinarily reassured, promising them safe arrival, because thus you had promised her in a vision. She found me in a perilous state, through my deep despair of ever discovering the truth. But even when I told her that if I was not yet a Catholic Christian, I was no longer a Manichaean, she was not greatly exultant as at some unlooked-for good news, because she had already received assurance upon that part of my misery. She bewailed me as one dead, certainly, but certainly to be raised again by you, offering me in her mind as one stretched out dead, that you might say to the widow's son, Young man, I say to thee, arise. And he should sit up and begin to speak, and you should give him to his mother. So her heart was not shaken with any tumult of exultation at hearing that what daily she had begged of you with tears had in so large part happened, for I was at least rescued from my heresy, even if I had not yet attained the truth. In fact, because she was certain that you would give her what remained since you had promised her all, she answered me serenely and with a heart full of confidence that in Christ she believed that she would see me a faithful Catholic before she died. So much she said to me. But to you, O fount of mercy, she multiplied her prayers and her tears, that you should hasten your help and enlighten my darkness. And she hastened to church more zealously than ever, and drank in the words of Ambrose as a fountain of water springing up into life everlasting. She loved that man as an angel of God, because she had learned that it was by him that I had been brought so far as to the wavering state I was now in, through which she took it for granted that I had to pass on my way from sickness to health, with some graver peril yet to come, analogous to what doctors call the crisis. Chapter 2 My mother had brought meal and bread and wine to certain oratories built to the memory of saints, as was her custom in Africa. But the sacristan prevented her. When she learned that the bishop himself had forbidden the practice, she received the prohibition so devoutly and obediently that I wondered at the ease with which she turned into a critic of her own former custom rather than of the present prohibition. For her soul was not a slave to wine-drinking, nor had she any love of wine to provoke her to hatred of the truth, like so many of both sexes, who are as much sickened by a hymn of sobriety as drunkards would be if one poured water into their wine. But when my mother brought her basket with those accustomed dainties, of which she meant to eat a little and give away the rest, she never allowed herself more than one small cup diluted to her sober palate, and from this she would sip no more than was fitting." And if there were many oratories of departed saints to be honored in that way, she took round with her the same cup to be used in each place. And this, not only diluted with water, but by now lukewarm, she would share with others present in small sips, for her concern was with piety and not with the pleasure of the wine. But when she found that the custom was forbidden by so famous a preacher and so pious a bishop, even to those who used it soberly, lest it might be an occasion of gluttony to the heavier drinkers, and because in any event these funeral feasts in honor of our parents in the faith were too much like the superstitions of the heathens, she abandoned the practice quite willingly. In place of her basket filled with the fruits of the earth, she learned to offer at the shrines of the martyrs a breast full of prayers purer than any such gifts. Thus she was able to give what she could to the needy, and the communion of the Lord's body was celebrated where the martyrs had been immolated and crowned in the likeness of his passion. But yet, O Lord my God, it does seem to me, and upon this matter my heart is in your sight, that my mother might not so easily have borne the breaking of her custom if it had been forbidden by some other whom she did not love as she loved Ambrose. 
for on account of my salvation she loved him dearly, and he loved her on account of her most religious way of life, for she was fervent in spirit and ever doing good, and she haunted the church, so that when he saw me he often broke out in her praises, congratulating me that I had such a mother, and not realizing what sort of a son she had. For I doubted all these things and did not believe that the way of life could be discovered. Chapter 3 Nor did I then moan in prayer for your help. My mind was intent upon inquiry and unquiet for argumentation. I regarded Ambrose as a lucky man by worldly standards to be held in honor by such important people. Only his celibacy seemed to me a heavy burden. I had no means of guessing, and no experience of my own to learn from, what hope he bore within him, what struggles he might have against the temptations that went with his high place, what was his consolation in adversity, and on what joys of your bread the hidden mouth of his heart fed. Nor did he know I was inflamed, nor the depth of my peril. I could not ask of him what I wished as I wished, for I was kept from any face-to-face -face conversation with him by the throng of men with their own troubles, whose infirmities he served. The very little time he was not with these, he was refreshing either his body with necessary food, or his mind with reading. When he read, his eyes traveled across the page, and his heart sought into the sense, but voice and tongue were silent. No one was forbidden to approach him, nor was it his custom to require that visitors should be announced, but when we came into him, we often saw him reading, and always to himself, and after we had sat long in silence, unwilling to interrupt a work on which he was so intent, we would depart again. We guessed that in the small time he could find for the refreshment of his mind, he would wish to be free from the distraction of other men's affairs, and not called away from what he was doing. Perhaps he was on his guard, lest, if he read aloud, someone listening should be troubled, and want an explanation if the author he was reading expressed some idea over-obscurely, and it might be necessary to expound or discuss some of the more difficult questions. And if he had to spend time on this, he would get through less reading than he wished. Or it may be that his real reason for reading to himself was to preserve his voice, which did in fact readily grow tired. But whatever his reason for doing it, that man certainly had a good reason. Anyhow, I was given no opportunity of putting such questions as I desired to that holy oracle of yours, his breast, unless they were of a sort to be heard briefly. But the agitation working in me required that he should be fully at leisure if I were to pour it out before him, and I never found him so. Still I heard him every Sunday preaching the word of truth to his congregation, and I became more and more certain that all those knots of cunning and calumny which those who deceived me had tangled up against the holy books could be untangled. I learned that the phrase, Man created by you in your own image, was not taken by your spiritual children, whom of our Catholic mother you have made to be born anew by grace, to mean that you are bounded within the shape of a human body. And although I had not the vaguest or most shadowy notion how a spiritual substance could be, yet I was filled with shame, but joyful too, that I had been barking all these years not against the Catholic faith, but against mere figments of carnal imaginations. I had been rash and impious, in that I had spoken in condemnation of things which I should have learned more truly of by inquiry. For you, O highest and nearest, most hidden and most present, have not parts greater and smaller. You are holy everywhere, yet nowhere limited within space, nor are you of any bodily form. And yet you have made man in your own image, and man is in space from head to foot. Chapter 4 Thus I was ignorant how this image of yours could be, but I should have knocked at the door and proposed the question how it was to be believed, and not jeeringly opposed it as if it were believed in this or that particular way. The anxiety as to what I should hold as sure gnawed at my heart all the more keenly, as my shame increased at having been so long tricked and deceived by the promise of certainty, and at having with a rashness of error, and at having with a rashness of error worthy of a child, gone on spouting forth so many uncertainties as confidently as if I had known them for sure. That they were false I saw clearly only later. Yet already I was certain that they were at least uncertain, and that I had taken them for certain, when in the blindness of my opposition I attacked your Catholic Church. 
I did not yet know that she was teaching the truth, but I had found that she did not teach the things of which I had so strongly accused her. So I was first confounded and then enlightened. And I rejoiced, O my God, that your only church, the body of your only Son, in which the name of Christ has been put upon me while I was still an infant, had no taste for such puerile nonsense, nor in her sound doctrine had she the notion of somehow packing you, the Creator of all things, into any space, however mighty and ample yet bounded upon all sides, in the shape of a human body. I was glad also that the old scriptures of the law and the prophets were set before me now, no longer in that light in which they had formerly seemed absurd, when I criticized your holy ones for thinking this or that which in plain fact they did not think. And it was a joy to hear Ambrose, who often repeated to his congregation, as if it were a rule he was most strongly urging upon them, the text, The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. And he would go on to draw aside the veil of mystery, and lay open the spiritual meaning of things which taken literally would have seemed to teach falsehood. Nothing of what he said struck me as false although I did not as yet know whether what he said was true. I held back my heart from accepting anything, fearing that I might fall once more, whereas in fact the hanging in suspense was more deadly. I wanted to be as certain of things unseen as that seven and three make ten, for I had not reached the point of madness which denies that even this can be known. But I wanted to know other things as clearly as this, either such material things as were not present to my senses, or spiritual things which I did not know how to conceive save corporeally. By believing I might have been cured, for then the eye of my mind would have been clearer, and so might in some way have been directed towards your truth, which abides forever and knows no defect. But as usually happens, the man who has tried a bad doctor is afraid to trust even a good one. So it was with the health of my soul, which could not be healed save by believing, and refused to be healed that way for fear of believing falsehood. Thus I was resisting your hands, for you first prepared for us the medicine of faith, and then applied it to the diseases of the world, and gave it such great power. Chapter 5 From this time on I found myself preferring the Catholic doctrine, realizing that it acted more modestly and honestly in requiring things to be believed which could not be proved, whether they were in themselves provable, though not by this or that person, or were not provable at all, than the Manichees who derided credulity and made impossible promises of certain knowledge, and then called upon men to believe so many utterly fabulous and absurd things because they could not be demonstrated. Next, Lord, with gentle and most merciful hand, you worked upon my heart and rectified it. I began to consider the countless things I believed which I had not seen, or which had happened with me not there, so many things in the history of nations, so many facts about places and cities which I had never seen, so many things told me by friends, by doctors, by this man, by that man, and unless we accepted these things, we should do nothing at all in this life. Most strongly of all it struck me how firmly and unshakably I believed that I was born of a particular father and mother, which I could not possibly know unless I believed it upon the word of others. Thus you brought me to see that those who believed your Bible, which you have established among almost all peoples with such authority, were not to be censured, but rather those who did not believe it, and that I must give no heed to any who might say to me, How do you know that those scriptures were given to mankind by the Spirit of the one true and most true God? For this point above all was to be believed, because no assault of fallacious questions which I had read in such multitude in the philosophers, who in any event contradicted each other, could constrain me not to believe both that you are, though what might be your nature I did not know, and that the government of human affairs belongs to you. But though I held these truths sometimes more strongly, sometimes less, yet I always believed both that you are and that you have a care for us, even if I did not know what I must hold as to your substance, or what way leads to you, or leads back to you. Thus, since men had not the strength to discover the truth by pure reason, and therefore we needed the authority of Holy Writ, I was coming to believe that you would certainly not have bestowed such eminent authority upon those scriptures throughout the world, unless it had been your will that by them men should believe in you, and in them seek you. 
Now that I heard them expounded so convincingly, I saw that many passages in these books which had at one time struck me as absurdities must be referred to the profundity of mystery. Indeed, the authority of Scripture seemed to be more to be revered and more worthy of devoted faith, in that it was at once a book that all could read and read easily, and yet preserve the majesty of its mystery in the deepest part of its meaning. For it offers itself to all in the plainest words and the simplest expressions, yet demands the closest attention of the most serious minds. Thus it receives all within its welcoming arms, and at the same time brings a few direct to you by narrow ways. Yet these few would be fewer still, but for this twofold quality by which it stands so lofty in authority, yet draws the multitude to its bosom by its holy lowliness. So I dwelt upon these things, and you were near me. I sighed, and you heard me. I was wavering uncertainly, and you guided me. I was going to the broad way of the world, and you did not forsake me. Chapter 6 I was all hot for honors, money, marriage, and you made mock of my hotness. In my pursuit of these I suffered most bitter disappointments, but in this you were good to me, since I was thus prevented from taking delight in anything not yourself. Look now into my heart, Lord, by whose will I remember all this and confess it to you. Let my soul cleave to you, now that you have freed it from the tenacious hold of death. At that time my soul was in misery, and you pricked the soreness of its wound, that leaving all things it might turn to you, who are over all, and without whom all would return to nothing, that it might turn to you and be healed. I was in utter misery, and there was one day especially on which you acted to bring home to me the realization of my misery. I was preparing an oration in praise of the emperor in which I was to utter any number of lies to win the applause of people who knew they were lies. My heart was much wrought upon the shame of this and inflamed with the fever of the thoughts that consumed it. I was passing along a certain street in Milan when I noticed a beggar. He was jesting and laughing and I imagined more than a little drunk. I fell into gloom and spoke to the friends who were with me about the endless sorrows that our own insanity brings us, for here I was striving away, dragging the load of my unhappiness under the spurring of my desires and making it worse by dragging it, and with all our striving our one aim was to arrive at some sort of happiness without care. The beggar had reached the same goal before us, and we might quite well never reach it at all. The very thing that he had attained by means of a few pennies begged from passers-by, namely the pleasure of a temporary happiness, I was plotting for with so many a weary twist and turn. Certainly his joy was no true joy, but the joy I sought in my ambition was emptier still. In any event, he was cheerful and I worried. He had no cares, and I nothing but cares. Now if anyone had asked me whether I would rather be cheerful or fearful, I would answer, cheerful. But if he had gone on to ask whether I would rather be like that beggar, or as I actually was, I would certainly have chosen my own state, though so troubled and anxious. Now this was surely absurd, it could not be for any true reason. I ought not to have preferred my own state rather than his, merely because I was the more learned, since I got no joy from my learning, but sought only to please men by it, not even to teach them, only to please them. Therefore did you break my bones with the rod of your discipline. Let my soul pay no heed to those who would say, It makes a difference what one is happy about. The beggar found joy in his drunkenness, you sought joy in glory. But what glory, Lord? A glory not in you for my glory was no truer than his joy, and it turned my head even more. That very night he would sleep off his drunkenness, but how often and often I had gone to bed with mine and woken up with it, and would in the future go to bed with it and wake up with it. It does indeed make a difference what one is happy about. I know it, and I know that the happiness of a sure hope is incomparably beyond all such vanity. And there was indeed a difference between him and me, for he was much the happier man, not only because he was soaked in his merriment while I was eaten up with cares, but also because he, by wishing luck to all comers, had at least got wine, while I, by lying, was aiming only to get empty praise. I spoke much to this effect to the friends that were with me, 
and I often observed that it was with them as it was with me, and I found it very ill with me. So I worried, and by worrying doubled the ill. And when by chance prosperity smiled in my direction, I lacked the spirit to seize it, for it fled away almost before I could get my hand upon it. Chapter 7 We were gloomy together with such thoughts, I and those who were closest to me. I discussed the problem especially with Olypius and Nebridius. Olypius was born in the same town as I. His parents were of high rank there. He was younger than I, indeed he had studied under me both when I began my teaching in our native town and afterwards at Carthage. He was much attached to me because he thought me kindly and learned, and I to him because of the great bent towards virtue that was so marked in him so young. But at Carthage the maelstrom of ill morals, and especially the passion for idle spectacles, had sucked him in, his special madness being for gladiatorial shows. When he first came into the grip of this wretched craving, I had set up a school for the public and was teaching rhetoric. He had not come to me as a pupil because of some difference that had arisen between his father and me. I discovered that he was quite fatally devoted to the games, and I was much worried because it seemed to me that so much promise was to be thrown away, or had already been thrown away. But I had no way of advising him or forcibly restraining him, neither the good will of a friend nor the right of a master. For I took for granted that he would feel about me as his father did. In fact, he did not. He took his own line in the matter, rather than his father's, and fell into the way of greeting me when we met, and of coming sometimes into my school to listen a while and be off again. But it had passed from my mind that I could do anything to prevent the waste of so good a mind in the blind and ruinous pursuit of the empty pastimes he was in. But you, Lord, who hold the helm of all that you have created, had not forgotten him, and indeed he was one day to be numbered amongst your children as a high priest of your sacrament. That his amendment might be obviously due to you, you brought it about through me, and without my being aware of it. For one day when I was sitting in my usual place with my students in front of me, he came in, greeted me, sat down, and gave his attention to what was being discussed. I had in hand a passage that I was expounding, and it suddenly struck me that it could be very well illustrated by a comparison taken from the games, a comparison which would make the point I was establishing clearer and more amusing, and which involved biting mockery of those who were slaves to that particular insanity. You know, O oh my God and his, that I was not thinking of Olypius or his need to be cured of that disease, but he applied it instantly to himself, and thought I had said it solely on his account. Another might have taken it as a reason for being angry with me, but the youth was honest enough to take it as a reason for being angry with himself, and for warmer attachment to me. You said long ago, and caused it to be written in your book, Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. As a matter of fact, I had not been rebuking him, but you use all men with or without their knowledge for a purpose known to yourself, and that purpose is just. Thus of my heart and tongue you made burning coals to cauterize and heal a mind of such promise, though it lay sick. Let him praise you not who does not realize your mercies, which my soul's depths confess to you. As a result of what he had heard me say, he wrenched himself up out of the deep pit in which he had chosen to be plunged, and in the darkness of whose pleasures he had been so woefully blinded. He braced his mind and shook it till all the filth of the games fell away from it, and he went no more. Then he prevailed upon his unwilling father to let him be one of my students. His father did at last yield. Olypius began to take lessons from me again, and so came to be involved with me in the same superstitions. He loved especially the pretense the Manichees made of continence, which he took to be quite genuine. But in fact it was a senseless and misleading continence, which seduced precious souls not yet able to reach the profound depth of virtue, and easily deceived with the surface appearance of what was only an unreal counterfeit of virtue. Chapter 8 in pursuit of the worldly career whose necessity his parents were always dinning into his ears, he had gone before me to Rome to study law, and there, incredibly, he had been carried away again by an incredible passion for gladiatorial shows. He had turned from such things and utterly detested them, 
but it happened one day that he met some friends and fellow students coming from dinner, and though he flatly refused and vigorously resisted, they used friendly violence and forced him along with them to the amphitheater on a day of those cruel and murderous games. He protested, Even if you drag my body to the place, can you force me to turn my mind and my eyes on the show? Though there I shall not be there, and so I shall defeat both you and it. Hearing this, his companions led him on all the faster, wishing to discover whether he could do as he had said. When they had reached the arena and had got such seats as they could, the whole place was in a frenzy of hideous delight. He closed up the door of his eyes and forbade his mind to pay attention to things so evil. If only he could have stopped his ears, too. For at a certain critical point in the fight, the vast roar of the whole audience beat upon him. His curiosity got the better of him, and thinking that he would be able to treat the sight with scorn, whatever the sight might be, he opened his eyes and was stricken with a deeper wound in the soul than the man whom he had opened his eyes to see got in the body. He fell more miserably than the gladiator, whose fall had set the crowd to that roar, a roar which had entered his ears and unlocked his eyes, so that his soul was stricken and beaten down. But in truth, the reason was that its courage had so far been only audaciousness, and it was weak because it had relied upon itself when it should have trusted only in you. Seeing the blood, he drank deep of the savagery. He did not turn away, but fixed his gaze upon the sight. He drank in all the frenzy, with no thought of what had happened to him, reveled in the wickedness of the contest, and was drunk with lust for blood. He was no longer the man who had come there, but one of the crowd to which he had come, a fit companion for those who had brought him. What more need I say? He continued to gaze, shouted, grew hot, and when he departed, took with him a madness by which he was to be goaded to come back again, not only with those who at first took him there, but even more than they, and leading on others. Yet out of all this you drew him with strong and merciful hand, teaching him to have confidence in you, not in himself. But this was long after. Chapter 9 For the time the matter was only laid up in his memory for his future healing. So also was an incident which happened earlier while he was still a student in my school at Carthage. He was in the marketplace at noon one day, going over in his mind something that he had to say by heart, as students usually have to do, when you allowed him to be arrested as a thief by the officers in charge of the market. I imagine that you allowed this, O our God, for no other cause than that one who was to be so great should learn thus early that in judging cases man must not too easily be condemned by man through rash credulity. As he was walking by himself before the judgment seat with his tablets and his pen, the real thief, a young man who was also a student, came along with an axe concealed under his clothes, and, quite unseen by Olypius, went up to the leaden gratings which are over the silversmith's shops, and began to cut away the lead. When they heard the sound of the axe, the silversmiths underneath began to call out, and sent men to seize whomever they might find. The thief heard their voices and ran away, leaving his axe behind, for fear that he might be caught with it. Now Olypius, who had not seen the man arrive, saw him depart, observed the speed of his departure, and wondering what it was all about, went up to the place. He found the axe and stood looking at it with surprise. At this moment, those who had been sent found him alone and carrying the weapon whose noise had startled them and brought them there. They seized him, dragged him off, and, gathering the neighboring shopkeepers, made a great boast of having caught the thief in the act. They took him off to hand him over to the officers of the law. But his lesson stopped there. For at that point, Lord, you came to the aid of his innocence, of which indeed you were the only witness. For as he was being led off to imprisonment or torture, they were met by a certain architect, who had the principal charge of public buildings. They were particularly pleased to meet him just then, because they were themselves under suspicion of stealing the goods that were lost out of the marketplace, and they felt that at last he would know who had done the stealing. But this man had often seen Olypius at the house of a certain senator, whom he himself frequently visited. He knew him at once, and taking him by the hand, drew him away from the crowd and inquired the cause of all the trouble. 
He heard what had happened and commanded the rabble who thronged about, raging and threatening Olypius, to come with him. They came to the house of the young man who had done the deed. There was a boy outside the door who was quite ready to tell the whole thing, being too young to fear that any harm would come to his master from what he said, for he had gone with him to the marketplace. Olypius remembered seeing the boy and told the architect, who showed the hatchet to the boy and asked him whose it was. Ours, replied the boy immediately. He was questioned further and disclosed everything. Thus the guilt was transferred to the man who lived in that house, to the great confusion of the crowd which had been hurling its taunts at Olypius. Olypius indeed, who was later to be a dispenser of your word and to investigate many cases in your church, went off very much wiser for the experience. Chapter 10 I found him at Rome when I came there, and he became my close friend. He went with me to Milan, so that he might be still with me, and might at the same time practice the law he had studied, but this rather to please his parents than of his own wish. He had already sat three times as an assessor, displaying an integrity that caused others to marvel, whereas he marveled that any should prefer money to honesty. His character was tested further, not only by the temptation of bribery, but also by the threat of danger to himself. At Rome he had been assessor to the Chancellor of the Italian Treasury. There was at the time a very powerful senator to whom many were bound by favors received, while many stood in fear of him. He wanted to have permission granted him for something forbidden by the law. Ordinarily so powerful a man would have got it as a matter of course, but Olypius refused. A bribe was offered. He treated it with complete contempt. He was threatened and treated the threats likewise. Everyone was amazed at so rare a spirit, in that he neither courted the friendship nor feared the enmity of a man so important and so well known for the innumerable means at his disposal for advancing or damaging others. The judge himself to whom Olypius acted as assessor did not want to grant the permit but would not openly refuse it. He put the blame upon Olypius, claiming that Olypius would not let him do it, and in truth, if he had tried, Olypius would have left the court. The only thing that did tempt him was his love of study. He thought of having books copied for him at the reduced rates allowed to praetors. But considering the equity of the matter, he came to a better decision, holding justice which forbade it more valuable than the power to do it. All that I have so far said is small, yet he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that which is greater. Nor is that word void which proceeded from the mouth of your truth. If then you have not been faithful in the unjust mammon, who will trust you with that which is the true? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Such then was the man who was so close a friend, and shared my wavering as to the course of life we should adopt. I have mentioned Nebridius. He had left his native place near Carthage. He had left Carthage itself where he had mainly lived, had left his rich family estate and his house and his mother, for she would not come with him. All these things he had left and had come to Milan for no other reason than to be with me, for with a real passion for truth and wisdom he was in the same anguish as I and the same uncertain wavering, and he continued his ardent search for the way of happiness and his close investigation of the most difficult questions. Thus there were together the mouths of three needy souls, bitterly confessing to one another their spiritual poverty and waiting upon you that you might give them their food in due season. And amidst the bitter disappointments which through your mercy followed all our worldly affairs, Darkness clouded our souls as we tried to see why we suffered these things, and we turned away in deepest gloom, saying, How long shall these things be? This question was ever on our lips, but for all that we did not give up our worldly ways, because we still saw no certitude which it was worth changing our way of life to grasp. Chapter 11 I was much exercised in mind as I remembered how long it was since that nineteenth year of my age in which I first felt the passion for true knowledge, and resolved that when I found it, I would give up all the empty hopes and lying follies of vain desires. And here I was going on for thirty, still sticking in the same mire, greedy for the enjoyment of things present, though they ever eluded me and wasted my soul, and at every moment saying, 
Tomorrow I shall find it. It will be all quite clear, and I shall grasp it. Faustus will come and explain everything, and those mighty academics. Is it true that nothing can be grasped with certainty for the directing of life? No, we must search the more closely and not despair. For now the things in the scriptures which used to seem absurd are no longer absurd, but can be quite properly understood in another sense. I shall set my foot upon that step on which my parents placed me as a child until I clearly find the truth. But where shall I search? When shall I search? Ambrose is busy. I am myself too busy to read. And in any event, where can I find the books? Who has them or where can I procure them? Can I borrow them from anyone? I must appoint set times, set apart certain hours for the health of my soul. A great hope has dawned. The Catholic faith does not teach the things I thought and vainly accused it of. Catholic scholars hold it blasphemy to believe God limited within the shape of a human body. Do I hesitate to knock, that other truths may be opened? My pupils occupy the morning hours, but what do I do with the rest? Why not do this? But if I do, when shall I have the time to visit the powerful friends of whose influence I stand in need, or when prepare the lessons I sell to my pupils, or when refresh myself by relaxing my mind from too close preoccupations with my heavy concerns? But perish all this. Let me dismiss this vanity and emptiness and give myself wholly to the search for truth. Life is a poor thing. Death may come at any time. If it were to come upon me suddenly, in what state should I depart this life? And where am I to learn the things I have neglected? Or must I not rather suffer the punishment of my negligence? Or does death perhaps cut off and end all care along with our bodily sense? This too must be settled. But God forbid that it should be so. It is not for nothing or any mere emptiness that the magnificence of the authority of the Christian faith is spread all over the world. Such great and wonderful things would never have been wrought for us by God if the life of the soul were ended by the death of the body. Why then do I delay to drop my hopes of this world and give myself wholly to the search for God and true happiness? Yet stay a moment. After all, these worldly things are pleasant. They have their own charm, and it is no small charm. The mind is not easily cut off from them merely because it would be base to go back to them. Again, it would not be too difficult to win some post of honor, and what more should I have to wish for? I have a body of powerful friends. Even if I press on to nothing more ambitious, I could at least get a governorship. And then I could marry a wife with some little money of her own, so that she would not increase my expenditure. And so I should have reached the limit of ambition. Many great men, well worthy of our imitation, have given themselves to the pursuit of wisdom, even though they had wives. These things went through my mind, and the wind blew one way and then another, and tossed my heart this way and that. Time was passing, and I delayed to turn to the Lord. From day to day I postponed life in you, but I did not postpone the death that daily I was dying in myself. I was in love with the idea of happiness, yet I feared it where it was, and fled away from it in my search for it. The plain truth is that I thought I should be impossibly miserable if I had to forego the embrace of a woman, and I did not think of your mercy as a healing medicine for that weakness because I had never tried it. I thought that continency was a matter of our own strength, and I knew that I had not the strength. For in my utter foolishness I did not know the word of your scripture that none can be continent unless you give it. And truly you would have given it if with groaning of spirit I had assailed your ears and with settled faith had cast my care upon you. Chapter 12 it was Olypius indeed who kept me from marrying, with his unvarying argument that, if I did, we could not possibly live together with untroubled leisure in the pursuit of wisdom, as we had so long desired. For on that side of things he was quite extraordinarily chaste. Early in adolescence he had had the experience of sexual intercourse, but it took no hold upon him. Indeed, he regretted having done it, and despised it, and from then on lived in complete continence. I brought up the example of those who had pursued wisdom in the married state, and served God faithfully, and faithfully kept and cherished their friends. But indeed I was far enough from their greatness of spirit. I was bound by this need of the flesh, and dragged with me the chain of its poisonous delight, fearing to be set free. And I rejected his words of wise counsel, 
pushing away the hand that would set me free, as though it were hurting a sore place. Moreover, through me the serpent began to speak to Olypius himself. By my tongue the devil wove fascinating snares and scattered them in his path for the entangling of his hitherto untrammeled feet. For he marveled to see me, of whom he thought so much, stuck so fast in the grip of that particular lust, as to affirm whenever we talked of it that I could not possibly lead a single life. I urged on my side, when I saw how puzzled he was, that there was a great difference between the snatched and furtive experience of sex which he had had as a boy, and now scarcely remembered and could therefore brush aside with no particular trouble, and the enjoyment of my permanent state. It only needed the honorable name of marriage, and he would have had no cause to wonder why I could not give up that way of life. The result was that he began to desire marriage himself, not through any lust for the pleasure of it, but solely through curiosity. For as he explained, he wanted to discover what the thing was without which my life, which seemed to him so pleasing, would have seemed to me no life at all but torment. For his mind, itself free from the chain, marveled at my enslavement, and from marveling he came to a desire to try it. Thus he might well have entered upon the same experience, and so fallen into the enslavement which at present he found so incomprehensible. For he was willing to make a covenant with death, and he that loves danger shall fall into it. Such honor as there is in marriage from the duty of well-ordered life together and the having of children had very small influence with either of us. What held me so fiercely bound was principally the sheer habit of sating a lust that could never be satisfied, and what drew him who was not yet bound was curiosity about me. Thus we stood until you, O Most High, not forsaking our dust, but pitying our pitifulness, helped us by secret and wonderful ways. Chapter 13 Great effort was made to get me married. I proposed, the girl was promised me. My mother played a great part in the matter, for she wanted to have me married and then cleansed with the saving waters of baptism, rejoicing to see me grow every day more fitted for baptism, and feeling that her prayers and your promises were to be fulfilled in my faith. By my request and her own desire, she begged you daily with the uttermost intensity of her heart to show her in a vision something of my future marriage, but you would never do it. She did indeed see certain vain fantasies under the pressure of her mind's preoccupation with the matter, and she told them to me, not, however, with the confidence she always had when you had shown things to her, but as if she set small store by them. For she said that there was a certain unanalyzable savor, not to be expressed in words, by which she could distinguish between what you revealed and the dreams of her own spirit. Still she pushed on with the matter of my marriage, and the girl was asked for. She was still two years short of the age for marriage, but I liked her and agreed to wait. Chapter 14 there was a group of us friends who had much serious discussion together concerning the cares and troubles of human life which we found so hard to endure. We had almost decided to seek a life of peace away from the throng of men. This peace we hoped to attain by putting together whatever we could manage to get and making one common household for all of us, so that in the clear trust of friendship things should not belong to this or that individual, but one thing should be made of all our possessions and belong wholly to each one of us and everybody own everything. It seemed that there might be perhaps ten men in this fellowship, among us there were some very rich men, especially Romanianus, our fellow townsman, who had been a close friend of mine from childhood and had been brought to the court in Milan by the press of some very urgent business. He was strongest of all for the idea, and he had considerable influence and persuasion because his wealth was much greater than anyone else's. We agreed that two officers should be chosen every year to handle the details of our life together, leaving the rest undisturbed. But then we began to wonder whether our wives would agree, for some of us already had wives and I meant to have one. So the whole plan, which we had built up so neatly, fell to pieces in our hands and was simply dropped. We returned to our old sighing and groaning and treading of this world's broad and beaten ways, for many thoughts were in our hearts, but thy counsel standeth forever. 
and out of thy counsel didst thou deride ours, and didst prepare thine own things for us, meaning to give us meat in due season, and to open thy hands and fill our souls with thy blessing. Chapter 15 Meanwhile my sins were multiplied. She with whom I had lived so long was torn from my side as a hindrance to my forthcoming marriage. My heart which had held her very dear was broken and wounded and shed blood. She went back to Africa, swearing that she would never know another man, and left me with the natural son I had had of her. But I in my unhappiness could not, for all my manhood, imitate her resolve. I was unable to bear the delay of two years which must pass before I was to get the girl I had asked for in marriage. In fact, it was not really marriage that I wanted. I was simply a slave to lust. So I took another woman, not of course as a wife, and thus my soul's disease was nourished and kept alive as vigorously as ever, indeed worse than ever, that it might reach the realm of matrimony in the company of its ancient habit. Nor was the wound healed that had been made by the cutting off of my former mistress, for there was first burning and bitter grief, and after that it festered, and as the pain grew duller, it only grew more hopeless. Chapter 16 Praise be to thee, glory to thee, O fountain of mercies. I became more wretched, and thou more close to me. Thy right hand was ready to pluck me from the mire and wash me clean, though I knew it not. So far nothing called me back from the depth of the gulf of carnal pleasure, save fear of death and of the judgment to come, which, through all the fluctuations of my opinions, never left my mind. I discussed with my friends, Olypius and Nebridius, concerning the nature of good and evil, and Epicurus would certainly have won the palm in my judgment if I had not believed that after death there remained life for the soul and treatment according to its deserts, which Epicurus did not hold. And I put the question, supposing we were immortals and could live in perpetual enjoyment of the body without any fear of loss, why we should not then be happy, or what else should we seek? I did not realize that it belonged to the very heart of my wretchedness to be so drowned and blinded in it that I could not conceive that light of honor and of beauty loved for its own sake, which the eye of the flesh does not see, but only the innermost soul. I was so blind that I never came to ask myself what was the source of the pleasure I found in discussing these ideas, worthless as they were, with friends, and of my inability to be happy without friends, even in the sense of happiness which I then held, no matter how great the abundance of carnal pleasure. For truly I loved my friends for their own sake, and I knew that I was in turn so loved by them. O torturous ways! Woe to my soul with its rash hope of finding something better if it forsook thee! My soul turned and turned again, on back and sides and belly, and the bed was always hard, for thou alone art her rest. And behold, thou art close at hand to deliver us from the wretchedness of error, and establish us in thy way, and console us with thy word, Run, I shall bear you up, and bring you, and carry you to the end. <laughs>